morning. If you go ahead and turn to Colossians 1. We're going to read from verse 24 through 29 today. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Morning. Morning, morning. Um, it is uh, a lot easier to move from bass to preaching than it is from drums to preaching. Um, I haven't even started preaching yet, so we'll see. <laughs> well, welcome you guys here today. Uh, I'm glad you could be here. For those of you that went to Derby, how many of you guys went to Derby? Nice. All right. You're allowed to be tired. I don't, I don't mind that. But you're not allowed to be grouchy, okay? Um, uh, I'm excited about this message today, um, probably more so than I've been in a long time. Um, I have like two and a half things to say real quick. Um, first one is when Matt told me that I was going to get to preach, I was really, really jazzed because I don't, I don't get to do this as much, which is fine. That's, and he's the lead pastor and that, that's kind of the, his job. Um, but I, I do relish the opportunities that I get. But typically every other time it's been kind of like a filler week. Like he's not sure what he wants to preach on yet. So we finish something else, go ahead and do your thing. And then I get to do like a filler and then we get to start back up. So this time I was really excited because, you know, I, I don't, I can, I can actually contribute to the meta narrative this time. Um, but then I found out that he's going backwards next week. So it doesn't really accomplish a whole lot. Um, so <laughs> whatever. Um, the, uh, the other thing is, uh, after that, he told me what he was going to go back to do. And I was like, what, you don't trust me to do perseverance of the saints? Come on. I know, the, I know this stuff. It's not that I don't trust you. It's just uh, I want to do it. I'm like, fine, whatever. So then I just move on, and I get to my passage. And uh, I open up all the, like, six commentaries that he has on it. And each one says, this passage is one of the hardest ones in the Bible. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Great. So I get to wrestle with that when I'm going to be in Columbus three out of the uh, seven days this week. So it'll be fun. I'm excited about this. Um, let's go ahead and jump in. Um, he already read it once. Let's go ahead and read it again together. Um, we're basically just talking today about the servant, the servant of the gospel. And uh, it's really cool to see, I mean, this is still, remember, this is still Paul's uh, introduction <laughs> into Colossians. We're almost at the end of the first chapter. We're closing it out, and he's still in his introduction. Um, not only that, but the majority of what we're going to be reading right now is a run-on sentence. Uh, you can do that in Greek. I don't know why. Um, you're just allowed to. Uh, it made it really hard in class when you're trying to translate it into English. Uh, but this is a, a long run-on sentence. Uh, but what's cool is he's kind of tying everything that, he, that we've been hearing about the past, what, six weeks now um, into one tidy little awesome package. Uh, so let's go ahead and read this again together uh, while I sweat profusely. Uh, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, number one, the servant suffers. This is verse 24 through 25a. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister. Um, let's go ahead and dive into this. This passage is, is tricky. Um, you can kind of just read over it and move on if you want to. Um, that freedom is there for you. But if you really look at what Paul is saying, this idea of filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that kind of should make most of us go, what? Right? Um, what does he mean that Christ's afflictions are lacking? That sounds like a red flag to every Baptist inhibition that we have, right? Um, it just it, it bucks against everything that we think. I thought Christ was enough. I thought everything was paid. I thought there's no works that have to be done to, to gain our faith. Um, what's interesting, too, is you've got to remember that this is coming just after verse 23. Let's read verse 23 again. If indeed you continue in the faith. Remember that condition that we talked about in Bible study? And last Sunday, there's a condition based on what we will hope to gain, right? If. If you continue. So we talked about perseverance of the saints last week. How we have to run this race. How we have to persevere to the end. How we have to trust God and all that. We broke that down in Bible study. Um, and, and we're looking at this idea that he is the hope of the gospel. We see earlier in Colossians that his blood was enough, right? He made peace for us through the blood of the cross. So why is Paul all of a sudden changing gears and shifting focus to say, well, his afflictions are lacking? And the problem with some passages like this is we can get hung up on them. We can say, oh, the Bible's contradicting itself. Galatians, James, they don't make sense. Yeah, they do. Um, it's not for us to, to go at uh, these verses like this in Scripture and say, doesn't make sense, I'm done. Uh, we, we, have, we have the responsibility, I think, to to go after these and really sort through them. But first, um, as a warning, I want to tell you that when you do come to those, um, don't, just, don't just dive in and start swinging, trying to figure everything out, okay? Um, context is huge. Context is incredibly important. Um, despite what most of our culture will tell you, context is key, okay? Um, most of them don't like the idea. Of, uh, they say context is, blah, we don't need context. It's always just an excuse, especially when interpreting the Bible. Uh, all you have to do is go through an email that you have of theirs, find something that sounds absolutely hysterical, ridiculous, or insulting, and throw that back at them and say, well, why did you say this? Were well, you taking that out of, oh, context, yeah, oops. Um, context is key. So when we come to a difficult passage like this in Scripture, you need to first focus on what is clear before worrying about what is more tricky or difficult. Um, we'll find often uh, that what remains around that tricky or difficult part um, is is clear and indeed can illuminate what we're struggling with. Sometimes that thing that we're struggling with isn't necessarily even important. Now, all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuke, all that. I get that. The point is, that thing that's tricky 
may not be all that important because we can get focused on that to the exclusion of everything else around it. And what's interesting is the things around it inform and illuminate what that tricky thing is, right? So let's hop into this. Uh, we'll worry about the difficult part in a second. But there are three things that are clear in this passage, with or without the difficult part, right? First one is the gospel servant rejoices. The gospel servant rejoices. This, now I rejoice in my sufferings, is followed by what? It's, it's, it follows the fact that Paul just said, of which Paul, I, became a minister. So he's already laid out who he is, what he is, what he's doing. I'm a minister. I became a minister. And now, now what? Again, as we go through Colossians over the next month, um, realize that you always have to keep looking back, okay? Everything is going to build on itself. And so with this mountain that we've begun building, we can't just jump into this passage. This has to inform this. So as we jump into this, he's saying, now what? Now me, okay? <laughs> We've been talking about Christ, that awesome hymn that he had. We've been talking about you, and now, and, and you, remember, you were once this, you are this now, you will be this later. We talked about how that came about through Christ. We talked about that you need to run all the way through it, that you don't just get to be that. You become it as you run. And then we move on into me, Paul. Now I, what do I, what's my part in this play? What do I contribute to this. He says, so now I, a minister of the gospel, rejoice in my sufferings. The first thing is clear is the gospel servant rejoices. Uh, this follows the fact that he claims to be a, a minister. I think more accurately translated would be servant, okay? Um, this isn't the minister connotation that we have. Uh, when you think minister, you think guy with a little white thing right here, right? Um, we think the pastor, that type of thing. But the word here is one that you should be familiar with from covenant community, diakonos. It's a servant. So this is like the table waiter, somebody who um, rises up for a specific occasion, takes care of something. So he, he's become a servant, rising up for the gospel. Uh, that's kind of the picture that we're starting to see here. So he is rising up to be a servant. Um, and what I want you to see is that there's joy in being a part of this gospel and the method of which God has chosen to have the gospel work. Um, it's interesting in Greek, the sentence structure is not remotely close to ours. Um, you can cut all the words up into little cards, throw them in the air, let them fall on the ground, and kind of rearrange them however you want, and that's a complete sentence. Now, within that, they will put emphasis on some things by moving them a little bit. But overall, it really doesn't matter that much. Sometimes there's little parts to it, but not anything like as strict as we are in English. And what's cool is we still see in Greek that the emphasis, if you want it to be important, you just put it first. And so he does that, and it starts with, I rejoice. I became a minister, I rejoice. There is joy in what we do as being servants of the gospel. The joy of serving the gospel is an expression of the joy of believing the gospel. I think the, the struggle that a lot of us have in actually being joyous is the fact that we don't really enjoy the gospel. <laughs> it's just something that we signed up for. I was at an FCA event in Columbus just taking some notes on how they run some events and stuff for, as we prepare to do it in Dayton. And at the end of it, for this fundraiser that people are paying $50 a plate for um, to, to raise money. Um, but these are supposed to be Christian businessmen and women um, that are pouring into this ministry. And at the end, they do a gospel presentation. And the entire call to the altar, the entire preface is the fact that that day that Jesus comes back, don't you want that to be a glorious day? Don't you want Jesus to come to you and that be a glorious day? You need Jesus. 
Who wants to accept Jesus? Well, if I wanted to be a glorious day, absolutely. Sign me up. I like parties. There's probably going to be food. If Jesus is coming, it's going to be glorious. I'm game. And there's people that raise their hands. And now they think that they're saved. And now they're going to go through life and encounter the stuff that we're getting ready to talk about. There's a big reason that there's a giant gap in your notes after number two. Um, We're getting ready to talk about that stuff. And they find themselves wondering, where's God? Why, Why is this happening to me? And they don't have the answers. This stuff happens to you whether you're a believer or not. It's how you deal with it and what you understand the purpose to be. And now we have these people that raise their hands that want it to be a glorious day. They're going to walk through life thinking they're saved and die and go to hell. The reason a lot of Christians don't have joy is because they don't really know the gospel. And the joy of the gospel, believing in what Jesus did to us that we're going to get to, this is a phenomenal passage. The, The mystery that we get to see that is revealed here should blow our minds. It should allow us to sing these songs. It should allow us to serve. Because of what Christ did, because of what he did on the cross, because of God's plan and all of this to redeem us to himself through his son, it should cause us to enjoy the gospel. And out of that is born service. Um, So let's go ahead and read it. I don't want to spend all my time on that. Number two, the gospel servant suffers. I rejoice in my sufferings. Joy is not the focus. Paradoxically, it is his sufferings. So he may emphasize and begin with the joy, but that's not where the majority of what he's getting ready to talk about. It's not where his focus is at. His focus is on the sufferings. And we see it really repeated twice, specifically later in um, verse 29 as he wraps up. But the gospel servant suffers. Joy is not the focus. It is his sufferings. Um, and, and we see Paul's sufferings. They're well documented. Um, but I want you to understand, too, that Paul is no masochist, right? Um, just as the joy is gospel joy, the suffering is gospel suffering. So he's not saying, oh, yeah, bring the pain, right? Um, that's not, his, not how he rolls. Uh, this is more just how the gospel brings him gospel joy. The suffering brings him gospel suffering, right? Uh, So he's suffering for the sake. So the difficult part is then after that, I don't think I have to explain suffering. I think you know what suffering is. Um, But the difficult part is then what he he says that his sufferings mean. He says, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So I rejoice in my sufferings. Why do you rejoice in my sufferings? Because they're filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. That doesn't make sense. Um, let's, uh, Let's kind of break this down a little bit. Paul often spoke of suffering with Christ or sharing in Christ's sufferings. You see that? Um, I'm going to throw a lot of references at you guys, so if you want to scribble these down, this is your, your, your heads up. Um, and given that we're walking into suffering, um, if Bob Evans is there, the door's there, you can take a potty break, and uh, we'll see you on Tuesday or Wednesday if you want to. Um, but we're going to dive into this, okay? Um, all right, so we see Paul talking of suffering with Christ or sharing in Christ's sufferings in Romans 8.17. 2 Corinthians 1 5, Philippians 1 29, chapter 3, verse 8, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. You see it repeatedly of Paul saying, I am suffering with Christ, or I am sharing in his sufferings. We need to work on defining this idea of suffering. The difficulty is in what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, I'll tell you what it's not, because what we can read into it is that Christ's work wasn't sufficient, right? I'm filling up what's missing. It's like taking this bottle 
and saying it's not full to the brim. I need to fill up what is left. Uh, that's, okay, let's talk about what is not. Uh, Christ's afflictions were not um, inadequate. All right, we see in verse 20 of the same chapter here, it says, and making peace by the blood of his cross. That, that was final, it was absolute, it was enough. It's not this idea of Christ's work being part and Paul's work bringing it to completion. Okay, so it is a full, complete work. It's not what we're talking about. Uh, so we have another two options, and oh, they're kind of under the same idea. Okay, so right down under number two, some of you guys have heard this before, Matt's referenced it, is this idea of the already and not yet. It's a theme that flies all the way through Scripture um, from Old Testament to New. Uh, this idea of already, not yet. Okay? Um, that kind of goes under these two. Now, most commentators, people think that there's two options here. Okay? One is that the context informs it alone, and the other one is that the culture influences it as well. So let's talk about the first one, the context. This idea of death and the cross, the context that Paul is specifically writing in here informs it completely. And you see that in several different places of the already not yet. So if you look up in verse 6, verse 6 says, Of which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you. Uh, this idea of the whole world. Has the gospel reached the entire world yet? No, it hasn't. Is the gospel universal? Yeah, we talked about that last week. Is it effective for all? Yeah, we talked about that last week. So the already is that it is effective and that it is for all. It says it is bearing fruit in the whole world. Uh, we know from Scripture that the gospel is going to eventually reach all tribes. So we have the already and the not yet. So it has done this, but it has not yet done this. Is it any less complete? Yes and no. <laughs> It is complete gospel, but it has not effectively finished its work, right? Uh, we see it later in verse 23. All creation under heaven. It says, <clears throat> um, Yep. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Same deal as the whole world. Peace. Verse 20 making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is speaking specifically to our salvation, basically. Is our salvation complete? <laughs> yes and no. Are you saved? If you believe in the work of Jesus Christ and, and all that. Yes and no. Remember the idea of justification, sanctification, glorification? Do you have your glorified bodies? No, you don't. Um, I don't need <laughs> any response from that. I can see shiny light off of... Uh, off of his hair. <laughs> uh, we don't have, I love you. I'm sorry, Tom. Um, we don't have our glorified bodies yet, right? Um, I'm still rocking keg, and uh, we don't have our glorified bodies yet, right? Um, are you any nonetheless saved? Oh, you're still saved. We've been justified. This idea of our salvation being a process, this idea of our salvation being complete, but yet not complete and fulfilled, we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. This idea of the already not yet is all the way through, even this own chapter. The same is true in um, verse 22 when we look at kind of the reward, um, the, what we were, what we are now, what we will be. The, what we will be is he, he's now reconciled in his body, so he's done that part of it in order to, which is a future language, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. And we are not yet 
blameless and holy. But we have been reconciled in Christ. We have his righteousness, but we've not yet been presented. So we see this idea of the already not yet all the way through. And so the idea of the death and cross context is that the effects of Christ's death have not yet been fully realized. His afflictions are not lacking in the sense of not being enough, but in the sense that they have not yet had their full effect. This comes through servants of the gospel. So what they're trying to say is that his death has been complete and final. We, we all agree with that. Uh, when we're looking at Scripture, we have to let the Bible interpret the Bible, right? Basic hermeneutics, basic Bible interpretation. Um, scripture interprets Scripture. We don't bring ourselves to it. We let Scripture come to us. Um, all of that is wrapped up into here. So it, Scripture is informing itself. If you're looking at the death and the cross context, this is basically saying that he is, um, it is enough. His afflictions are enough. It's just they have not yet had their full effect. Um, the summation of that is it involves a servant's suffering. Paul's sufferings and Christ's afflictions are not added together to make some quantitative whole that is greater than the parts. Rather, this work of God is of the same character from beginning to end. The idea is that his death and his cross was enough. Okay? You were not adding two parts to make a complete whole. All right? If you add anything to Christ, what happens to the total? Nothing. It stays the same because we can't add anything, right? So the parts don't add up together in the first place, but the idea here is the servant's suffering. We're talking about the character of, of our salvation, all right? So when we look at the process of how we even got to having Jesus born, it was suffering, all right? As we follow that entire line all the way through the Old Testament, we see that suffering. If you take that onward, then... Don't you think that the same character would be expected? We see consistency in Scripture. So now Christ suffered. We will complete the character of our salvation and our suffering. It will be of the same essence, in, in other words. Um, so that is, that's kind of the first interpretation. Um, I don't think that that's wrong. Um, but given that I really like history, uh, the second one appeals and makes uh, a lot more sense to me. Um, let's go ahead and talk to this one. This is called the Woes of the Messiah. Um, Now, this is kind of debated, and the reason it's debated is understood. Um, It's not in Scripture. Um, We don't see necessarily this idea here, but it doesn't mean that it is, it's just because it's not in Scripture doesn't mean that it's it's potentially wrong, right? Um, This is more of an idea of um, Jewish uh, eschatology, kind of looking at their end times, ideas that were really ingrained in the fabric of their culture. Um, when we, if I say, give me an end times movie, I think some of you could give me at least three, right? 2012, Deep Impact. Armageddon. Armageddon. I can't hear. Armageddon. Armageddon, yeah. Bruce Willis, there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, now, how, what's the style of those movies? How do they, how do they move? Happy Family, all right? Slight news from the one guy who's driving in the middle of the desert in his truck with a scratchy radio. Gets information. This information, he calls on, he, he just calls NASA right up, right? He's got it in his phone book. <laughs> NASA. Bam. Got it, right? And then he's like, all right, all right, you guys can handle this? Awesome. I'm going to call the president. Click. <laughs> president, right? That's always how it goes. Um, so we move from there. He's in his truck. It's breaking down. In fact, some of them, sometimes they do break down, and then he's like, I've got this information to save the world. I'm stuck. Um, so we have that. 
But then what happens next, right? The first strike, whatever it may be. So like Armageddon, you know, maybe like a smaller asteroid breaks off, comes flying down, and it like destroys Paris or something. And we're like, oh no, this is going to happen again, right? With the big one. Um, you look at other ones, it just progressively gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, right? Eventually the earth is splitting. You're watching 2012. They're flying not 10,000 feet up in the air, but, you know, 200 feet below the surface as the earth splits. Does that make sense? Um, it just progressively gets worse and worse and worse. That idea is not originated with us by any means, okay? This is a very ancient idea of things getting progressively worse and worse and worse. So let's kind of break some of this down. Yes, I'm using paper. Um, that's because when I went to the office this morning, I saw that my battery was at 45%, and uh, my wife uses this for her music as well, so I was concerned and printed. Um, anyways, all right, so this is similar to death in the cross context, okay? Uh, it's similar in the fact that the redemptive suffering of Christ does not require any supplementation, it also is indicated in Paul's vocabulary. He shifts his vocabulary from using suffering to affliction. It's an important, important shift. Uh, the latter um, affliction is never, has never been used in uh, the New Testament for Christ's redemptive work. Okay, this is specifically through Paul. He's never used affliction as a word to describe uh, Christ's redemptive sufferings. Right? Afflictions is, it just pops up right here for the first time, at least and not in reference to his sufferings. Uh, the shift happens here, uh, as opposed to the death cross context, is that Jewish literature speaks of the messianic woes or the woes of the Messiah. These are tribulations to be endured by God's people in the days immediately before the coming of the Messiah. And our text specifically is suffused with apocalyptic language as well. Uh, the early Christian consciousness surely shared by Paul, uh, the Jew of all Jews, he calls himself, is an important backdrop. So I think it, it is foolish for us to um, attack Paul in his writings, um, absolutely forgetting the fact that he called himself the Jew of all Jews, uh, that he had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized, uh, that he was that guy that knew everything, okay? Um, for us to attempt to address this culture um, without concerning the, uh, the context of the culture uh, is foolish. So I think Paul even though he is still under the inspiration of the Spirit in writing this, he's still going to attack this from his culture, right? He's still going to be writing to them based off of their context and their culture. So Paul um, is certainly familiar with this idea of the Messianic woes. Um, you know, suffering itself, if we want to define it, we, we see it all throughout Scripture. We all experience it. We all have experienced it deeply ourselves or know someone very close to us that has experienced it. And a lot of People like to take verses out of the Bible, um, out of context, um, and they usually say those out loud, and they end up on TV, right? And I have a large bone to pick with them. I can get a little animated when I hear them talking about, there's, I'm pretty sure, a new book out from our friend, Mr. Joey O. Um, that's talking about how to be happy from Sunday to Sunday. <laughs> I've looked at the reviews. He's not talking about finding your joy in the gospel because that's all I would have to write. And I could sell a book like that, right? Just one piece of paper, with two pieces of cardboard around it that says, find your joy in the gospel and serving Jesus. Be happy from Sunday to Sunday. Right? We sell a million copies. Um, suffering is a very real thing 
Uh, for those of you that were there for Secret Church, you guys heard Dr. Flack give quite a large um, <laughs> exposition on that. But they want to say that suffering doesn't have to happen, right? If you receive bad news, you don't have to claim it, right? You name what you want and you claim it. We're going to wait for the Lord's MRI. I'm pretty sure that was the Lord's MRI. Um, I've got, I've got to listen to that. That's what they want to say is that suffering has no part here. Well, if they are right, then that must have just started, right? Because it certainly wasn't true in the Old Testament. We look at Moses, right? Everybody loves Moses. All of the Old Testament loves Moses. No one wants to live his life, all right? He wanders 40 years with people that absolutely refuse to do anything that he says. So your children, right? Um, Imagine walking around. They don't grow. They stay the same 40 years. Well, sure, they get old. Let's pretend that they go from like rebellious eight or maybe even the teenage years of 13 and they like skip their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. They're 80-year-old crotchety men, right? They just, you know, get off my lawn. They throw stuff at you. You know, they fart all the time, whatever it may be. Not typical 80-year-olds, the, the, the mean ones, okay? Um, he's wandering the desert with them for 40 years. Bread's falling from the sky. And they're like, oh, really? Bread again? Water again? You're providing for us again, right? Um, they just keep complaining. And finally, they all die off, and he gets them close to the promised land. They go up on the mountain, and he overlooks and sees the promised land that has been promised to him for many, many years now. And he says, it's finally time. And God says, no, no, I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted you to get to see this. I'm going to have Joshua take them in. I'm going to kill you on this mountain. Yeah, we don't talk about that really in Sunday school. Um, but that's in the Bible, and that's, that's there. Uh, that's his life. And when we look on farther and we look at David, uh, David, King David, had a um, son who raped um, his own daughter and then uh, tried to remove him from, he was actually removed from his throne for many years. And we see King David typically in Sunday school as, you know, rock Goliath, right? Um, we never talk about the fact that the sword never departed from his house. Um, not a good life. After that Bathsheba incident, it did not look good for him. Job. Job is no uh, stranger to suffering, right? He's kind of our go-to guy when we talk about this. Um, Job lost everything, family, wife, uh, not wife, sorry, family, kids, um, crops, resources, health, uh, in an instant. He was left with his nagging wife, right? Um, which <laughs> says, um, are you still hanging on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job replies, really, God? And my wife? How about a camel? trade him a camel for my wife, right? Um, it's kind of his view there. And his friends, too, saying, look, just just stop. Just, this is your fault, all this junk. And, uh, and that's Job. And we have Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the suffering prophet, right? Um, God promises that he will have the power to change the course of nations, um, that he will be able to uh, raise up and overthrow nations as long as you preach what I have commanded you to, to who I've commanded you to. <laughs> And he says, okay, I'll do it. So he starts preaching, and he gets beat up. He starts preaching, and he gets stoned. He starts preaching, and he gets beat up again, left in a ditch to die, bleeding, naked, struggling for air. And he shouts up finally to God and says, you've seduced me. You've brought me in with this promise of being able to raise up nations, of being able to overthrow ones. You've lied to me. And we see him still continue to be faithful in that and at the end of his life, they go into occupancy. Um, and guess who goes with them? Jeremiah. 
Suffering is very, very well documented in Scripture. You might be saying, okay, well, that's Old Testament. Fine, let's jump into New Testament with happy God. Right? You have John the Baptist, which Scripture says that there will be, there's not a man that has been born that will be greater than him, right? Um, that's John the Baptist, and what happens to him? He gets thrown in prison for calling out Herod's incestuous affair and writes to Jesus and says, are you the one that they've been talking about? And he responds to him, quoting from, I believe, Isaiah, saying, yeah, I'm the one. And he leaves out the part that says, and the captives will go free. In fact, John, you're going to get beheaded. We move on to Jesus himself. He says, if there's any other way for me to do this, um, let's do that. And God says, nope, you're going to the cross. Uh, we look at Paul. He's been... <laughs> Everything, right? And he ends up being eventually shipwrecked and stranded on an island and attacked by a snake, right? Um, good life, and eventually um, dies in Rome. Um, you look at John. Uh, John is the only one that uh, kind of had a quaint death, I suppose. Uh, we know that all the apostles were killed for their faith, whether they're being uh, crucified upside down, beheaded, um, whatever it may be. John um, was exiled to Patmos. Uh, but what we find from tradition is that he was actually, they tried to boil him alive, um, and it didn't quite work. Uh, he lived through it, so it freaked him out, and they exiled him to Patmos, uh, where he lived out his days. So suffering is, it's in the Bible. People that love God, that God chose, that were proclaiming his name, that were doing, saying, and being who he said to be. So if God didn't want his servants to suffer, like they say that, that uh, he doesn't, must have started more recently, right? So let's look at some history first. Um, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, died at 57. He struggled with depression for all of his life, even though that he wrote about 140 to 150 books. Uh, one of the most productive preachers of, of ever, other than Paul. Um, that's Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We look at John Owen. I just read a book by him called The Death of Death, The Mortification of Sin. Um, he had 11 kids. This is a Puritan preacher, so not too long ago, um, especially compared to John um, John Owen, a Puritan preacher, had 11 kids die before he died. One of my biggest fears is having, us having a miscarriage. I can't imagine preaching the funeral and setting up the services for 11 of my own children. John Owen. Horatio Spafford, not very much long ago. You guys know the song, It Is Well With My Soul, one of my favorite hymns of all time. Um, this was written after he had sent his wife and two daughters over uh, on a boat ahead of him to England, and uh, his two daughters drowned on the way over there. And he wrote, it as well with my soul. So if it's true that God doesn't want for us to suffer, it must have just started in like, you know, 1999. But then there's reality. God has ordained for us to suffer. In fact, we see it not just in, in the writings of Scripture. And keep in mind, please, that just because the words aren't in red doesn't make them any less authoritative than the words that are in black. Okay. Um, yes, it's Jesus, and we can learn a lot about Jesus' character, just like we can learn a lot about David's character in the Old Testament. But Scripture is all authoritative, right? Um, so as we look at here, uh, the first example is of Jesus specifically. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. It says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will we see, or when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. 
And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, remember perseverance, will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. All right, so I never defined the woes of the Messiah. This is what the woes of the Messiah are. It kind of... I have this for a reason, not just for me to drink. Um, it, it's kind of like this, okay? And I hate using analogies sometimes because they break down. But imagine that this vessel from Kroger is the entire collection of all suffering that will ever happen in humanity, okay? It's not yet full. It's right here. It was up here because I drank some. Um, but it's right here, all right? So this water represents how much suffering has taken place and all of humanity. Essentially what the idea of the woes of the Messiah is, remember how I said everything keeps getting worse and worse and worse? Is that sufferings add up. They add up, and eventually once it is full, that is when the Messiah will come. Now, they viewed the Messiah coming, remember, as somebody who was going to come on a cloud and power establish his kingdom. Christ didn't do it that way. He did come He did establish his kingdom. But it's not yet here. Remember? Already? Not yet. This plays into this. So this this idea is going to help us kind of sort through this. Now take your Bible and flip all the way to the right. Revelations chapter 6. This passage right here will make you want to become a missionary. (laughs) Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Tell me suffering is not meant for us. What this suggests and, and what it's, it's leading to, and, and then ultimately as Paul's talking about what is lacking then, or needing to be filled up, are the tribulations that are inevitable and necessary as God's kingdom faces the opposition of the dominion of darkness. It's verse 13 of, of Colossians 1. As members of Christ's own body, verse 18, uh, his people participate in the sufferings of Christ himself. We see from Jesus again in John chapter 16, verse 33, that you will have trouble. You will suffer for my name's sake, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. <laughs> Already not yet. There's going to be sufferings for us. So ideally, uh, what we can pull from this then is that Paul is talking about his afflictions, his suffering 
filling up what is lacking and the fact that he is suffering for the gospel, as we're going to kind of break down in a minute, suffering for the gospel in order to help fill the vessel, to bring the time closer, to share the burden. If I had a full bottle of water and I decided to just absolutely douse Robbie with it, right? He'd get soaked, right? Wet enough. Maybe not absolutely saturated, but he'd get pretty darn wet. If I drink some of the water and then do it, he's still going to get wet. But he's going to get less wet, right? Not that that necessarily matters when we're dealing with wetness. Um, Matt doesn't like a drop of rain um, unless he's completely wet. But the fact is, is he's going to be less wet, right? So the idea of what Paul is kind of talking about in his, for your sake, I'm taking this, for your sake, I rejoice, for your sake, because of my suffering, he's saying, I'm helping get you guys less wet. It's like if we had a big thing up here, and each of you had a sponge. I thought about doing this today, but it'd be really messy. Um, each of you had a sponge. You came up, and you each took your amount of suffering. It empties it. The same idea that we can kind of pull from here. He's rejoicing in the fact that he's able to take part and take away from some of their suffering in the Colossian church. So then the final question out of this, and then we'll be flying through the rest, trust me, is why does Paul seem to equate his suffering to Christ? And part of the whole problem here is that Paul is really putting himself in the same category, at least, um, as Christ. Why does he line himself up like that? Um, we see, um, you can look at these other cross-references if you want, where he kind of does this again. Second uh, Corinthians 1, 5-6, and uh, 4, 10-12 there. He kind of equates himself to, to Christ. Not, not Christ the person, but his works, his sufferings. Uh, because Paul's uh, apostolic ministry is an extension of Christ's work in the world, Paul identifies his own sufferings very closely with Christ's. They have no redemptive benefit for the church, but they are the inevitable accompaniment of Paul's commission to proclaim the end-time revelation of God's mystery that we're going to really talk about in 25 and 27. In this way, they are on behalf of the church. In becoming a servant of the gospel, Paul became a servant of the church, or better, the assembly. So, the fact that Paul is an apostle rather than just a disciple like we are, he's an apostle. His works just like the apostles, the other apostles' works, were of a different category than ours. Um, This is kind of the specific commission that Paul has from Christ um, as an apostle. This is part of the specific commission that he has, um, and it is an inevitable accompaniment that he suffer for it. It is of the same character, like we talked about earlier, as Christ. So um, let's move on. Um, if you guys have any more questions about suffering, just open up your, doc- your Dr. David Platt thing and read through that again. Um, that'll give you all that you need to know about suffering. So number three, the gospel servant serves, uh, specifically the assembly. Gospel servant serves. Uh, we see the word sake two times. Uh, he says, excuse me, in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Move on, he says, in lacking Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the assembly again. Um, We see sake showing up again uh, two times there. Is the servant of the gospel, verse 23, who is the servant of the assembly, verse 24. And in the process he will suffer. The servant of this gospel, like the one of whom the gospel speaks, suffers. It is a synonymous character thing that we're seeing. It is the same for him. It is the same for us. It carries through Scripture. Number two, 
A servant in the sufferings of our part of God's plan. So this is verse 25b through 27. It says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So number one, we're going to move kind of quickly here. God's plan and Paul's role. Similar to earlier where Paul identifies with Christ's suffering here. Um, It's his role in God's plan. It's his suffering in God's gospel. Um, This specific thing that we're going to look at first of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. Stewardship can mean two things in Paul's writing. Okay? The first one is that it refers to his own administration of his God-given responsibilities as an apostle. So because God commissioned him to do something, he's living out this administration of this, and he is fulfilling that duty. Um, you see that in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 9, 17. You see that in Ephesians 3, 2. The second one uh, that stewardship can mean is it refers to God's administration of the world, his plan of salvation, and its outworking. So we can see that he's either talking about my job as an apostle or God's job as an overworker of the entire world. So he's saying according to the stewardship from God. It ultimately is both, right? Ultimately, it's him being commissioned by God to take the gospel of Christ Jesus to the nations. So it's him, his commission... It's synonymous with really God's intention and design to take the gospel to the world. So we see this stewardship really having two meanings here as we're pushing God's plan and Paul's role down the same path. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God in verse 1 of this very chapter. Um, So we see, even in the beginning, that it's because of God's call on his life that he even has this commission. And because of both of these things, he lives them out. And that's what he's doing. So number two, God's plan is to fulfill his word. Um, I don't remember if I actually put these in your notes. These might just be my six points. Um, God's plan to fulfill his word. Um, I did what? So we're, we're really just going to work through this sentence from here on. Uh, God's plan is to fulfill his word. So I, Paul, became a minister to, by what? By the will of God to do what? To make the word of God fully known. You see this process of, of establishment, of commission, and of doing. Number three is God's plan is the, the mystery. And this is absolutely awesome. Uh, God's plan is the mystery that we see quoted. Uh, mystery is encountered, encountered first, really, other than Deuteronomy 29, 29. It talks about uh, the, the mysteries are the things that belong to God and that the things that have been revealed belong to us. That mystery is speaking more specifically of knowledge and understanding. What we're looking here in the mystery is is different okay i don't want to define it yet because it's part of the cool part uh but it's different than that and we see it really first addressed in this tense uh, i'm sorry sense in daniel okay Gen- daniel chapter 2 verse 44 says this is speaking of his vision the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever uh, this mystery that he's speaking of is is this vision of this statue that's made up of five different elements. Really. There's like iron, brass, and rock, and a couple other ones. Uh, and basically they are kind of a chart that we can use in eschatology as we're looking towards the end times of the different um, governments or cultures that are going to step up. So you have like the Greeks, you have the Romans, you have the, uh, the Babylonians, the Byzantines, those type of things are all kind of have a, a part of that. And what, what Daniel's saying is that uh, God is going to bring someone or bring a kingdom, rather, that will destroy all of this. It'll stand on its own, 
and it will stand forever. So these other ones have a certain time allotted, and God's kingdom will stand forever. Um, but the mystery is, is, what is that? What is that kingdom? How does it come? Who brings it? Who are they? Where? When? So number four, we see that the mystery was hidden for ages. They, they didn't understand it then. And we see pieces of God's promise of this mystery um, all the way back to Abraham. Uh, as he's promised uh, everything that is in the Abrahamic covenant uh, through Israel and Exodus 19, um, through David even and 2 Samuel 7. But how, when, where would God's pr- promises be realized? What allows Abraham to keep standing on the covenant that God gave him? That you will give me descendants more numerable than the stars in the sky or the, the sand on the shores. What allows me to keep holding on to that? When will you do this? You are a God of eternity. I am a mortal man. When will you do this? Number five, the mystery has now been revealed. I love this. He says, excuse me, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Um, If there's any word that you can love in scripture, um, it should be but. Um, You can like big butts. It's important. Um, I cannot lie. Um, Big butts are important, okay? It's basically anytime you see a but in scripture, we're looking at something that was, is, or is going on, but something else is going to happen, did happen, whatever. Butts are important, okay? I don't have a butt, but I know they're important. Um, Big picture here, okay? We have what it was. There's been this mystery, this great mystery of God that has been not known throughout all time. But now we get to see what's going on. But now it has been revealed to his saints. So real quick, typically when Paul mentions saints, he's speaking specifically of Jewish Christians, which is important given that this letter is written to Gentiles, but we'll see why in a second. So what is the plan? Finally, Paul tries to describe this mystery before he reveals it, which I think is hilarious. Uh, have you guys ever tried to describe something before actually defining what it is? Um, or you maybe you forget what it's called, um, so you're trying to explain it to get them to remember what it is. Um, it's hard to do that, right? Because knowing the actual word and saying it means you don't have to say all this because however awesome that is, they know that. But he's trying to explain it before he actually says it. Um, he says this mystery has now been revealed. How great among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this majesty is finally revealed, which is what? Christ in you. The mystery is Christ. The one of whom Paul has said so much in this introduction in his letter. Just look at verse 15 and 20 again. The awesome hymn that he gives of, of God, of Christ. Uh, the one on whom the creation of all things and the reconciliation of all things depend. Christ is the secret and it is now revealed. And we'll see that again in the next chapter. So please, please remember what I said about this building on itself. This is huge going into chapter 2. And we're going to spend a week again on perseverance. But remember this as we move into chapter 2. that This is absolutely pivotal. That Christ is the mystery. He is the one that was promised. He is the one that is going to bring the kingdom in that stands forever, just as Daniel was speaking about in the Old Testament. But there's more. It's Christ in you. It's not just Christ. It's not just Israel. It's not even just the Colossians, but it's the Gentiles. So we're talking about how this mystery has been revealed to the saints, Jewish Christians, God's chosen people. But now, but, but now, it's been revealed to everyone, and it is for the world. It's not just 
for them. It's for you. You alienated and hostile Gentiles, you've now been reconciled in Christ, 21 to 22. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, verse 6. Christ is therefore in the nations, and people from every nation are being brought to Christ. You see that all over Romans, another large Gentile letter. Christ is the mystery. He has been revealed and is for us. And it's not just for us, but it's in us. That is, that is just huge. That is what allows you to serve. That is the hope of the gospel. The fact that we have Christ. The fact that we weren't excluded. The fact that we get to share in that reward. That is absolutely huge. We move on to the hope of glory. Um, hope has been established already in verse 22 through 23. We see what is coming for us. That is a great hope that we will be presented blameless one day, right? We will be pre- presented perfect. We will have our glorified bodies. We will have all of that. That is a great hope. But it's just hope. All right, we see glory show up twice here. And, and I, don't want, I don't want glory to get lost in this idea of hope or, or riches. Riches is not the point. Hope is not the point. The point is that it is glorious. Remember, the, the whole idea is that we glorify God, that God be glorified. The supremacy of him, if we focus on the riches and what we get when we go to heaven, we find ourselves in the very spot that most of our churches are today, where they've lost the fact that there is glory in Christ and that it is for him first. Platt said on uh, Secret Church Considering Suffering, he said, Before the cross is ever for me, it is for God first. Which is crazy, because God didn't need to be redeemed. But the cross glorifies him. Everything that happened through the cross, that happens through salvation, that happens through redemption, regeneration, and completion in glorification with him is one of the most glorifying things that could ever happen, that God could move sinners like us to be reflected in Christ and be like Christ one day, restored in the image that we were created in. That brings glory to God. That is ultimately the consummation of his grand purposes is the splendor, magnificence, and wonder of the fact that there's glory in the mystery, and that mystery is Christ. That is huge. This idea of the glory should make suffering a little bit easier now, right? Um, It should make this a little bit easier, especially when we see in Romans, when we consider the sufferings of our present day not worth comparing to the glory and love of God. That changes things, right? When all of a sudden you have a child die, that's suffering. That is suffering. Now, the suffering is contextual, right? Um, it is not necessarily objective. It's, it's very contextual. You can have an 18-year-old who has his girlfriend break up with him. And just because we've, we've lived a little more life and we can say, oh, it's really not that big of a deal, it doesn't change the fact that it really hurts, right? That's still suffering. Just like the fact that we may only get two meals a day, um, for those that are eating maybe one a day, uh, it still hurts us, but it, it does hurt them greater. Um, so it's contextual. But the fact is, is that suffering is still an innate part of humanity and something that we experience. But it has a purpose, right? It has a purpose. It has a role to play. So how does this servant play his role in bringing God's plan to fulfillment? How do we wrap all this up? What is it about serving the gospel that brings suffering? Number three, the servant proclaims Christ. You want to know why you have to experience suffering? You want to know why people come after you? It's because you proclaim Christ. Flip that. You want to know why people don't come after you? You want to know why you don't suffer? It's because you don't proclaim Christ. 
If we proclaim Christ, we automatically align ourselves with who he is. So if I preach Christ, as I'm doing now, if I try to preach Christ on Facebook, in school, not in my workplace, um, I'm going to bring suffering on myself because I'm aligning myself with who he is, what he stands for, and I'm clinging to that body uh, that we have in him. So we proclaim Christ. How do we proclaim him? Him we proclaim everywhere and to everyone, to all people. Everyone shows up three times here. Again, we, we see repetition in Scripture. Scripture for dummies, remember, that's important. Anytime you see repetition, very important. Uh, but we see everyone multiple times. This is echoes of all things in 15 through 20. So we see all people are now to hear of Christ in whom all things have their origin, existence, and reconciliation. So read this passage again and then later go back to uh, 15 through 20 and watch how many times all things repeats. It's really cool how we see some parallelism here. But you move into number one, warning everyone. Warning everyone, admonishing. That's what we're, better translation is admonishing. Um, Proclaiming Christ means warning everyone. People's lives must change. They cannot be the same once Christ is known. Warning's root is translated to admonishing. We're going to see that later in chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, But admonishing seems to suggest that it may be directed directed towards non-Christians, and the idea is to stimulate repentance. Um, so warning, people say all the time, don't judge me. Don't, don't judge me based off your Bible. Don't, don't, don't say what I'm doing is wrong. It's relativism. It's universalism. It's whatever I want it to be is. Proclaiming Christ by nature is admonishing. Because when you proclaim Christ, you align yourself with him and you align yourself with what he stands for. And we know what he stands for. It's going to feel like judgment because it is. It's admonishment because your life, maybe not yours, their life doesn't line up with what you are living for and who you're claiming to represent. That, that is typically going to be more for non-Christians. And the idea is to stimulate repentance. Remember that this gospel is powerful. It's not just glorious, it's powerful. It can change lives just as it's changed yours. Number two is teaching everyone. Proclaiming Christ means teaching everyone. People's thinking and understanding of life and the world cannot remain the same once Christ is known. Just like admonishing, understanding the knowledge of Christ and his law necessitates change. One way or another. To truly know who he is, to truly know what he is, to know what he stands for, necessitates change. Have you ever had trouble explaining Christianity to someone who is lost? Of course you have. Um, knowing Christ requires a massive shift in our worldview that moves us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. It affects the way that we view everything. So understanding and knowledge of Christ and teaching that is gained. So in preaching and teaching and study, anytime you are learning, it's going to filter and shift and refine your worldview, right? Here's the problem. When we're lost, we're going this way. I, I can see everything over here, right? If I repent, I can turn around and I see everything else as God sees it. The problem is God's sitting over there looking this way. So when I talk to somebody walking this way, and I encounter them as I'm walking, and I say, no, really, you don't see what it's supposed to look like. And, but, you, but you do, and they can't. It's because we're no longer looking at the kingdom of darkness. We're heading towards the kingdom of the sun. It's a fundamental shift in our thinking. We see that the gospel is foolishness to those who are not believing. But it's the power to save to those who are. It's huge. 
Moving on. Um, this can only be done with or literally in all wisdom, in the sense that it will take wisdom to know how Christ is to be proclaimed in various situations and to different people. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. To proclaim Christ is therefore to convey wisdom. Teaching is directed uh, to Christians to enhance faith. So we look at admonishing being to stimulate repentance, and we see teaching being used to stimulate or enhance faith. Number three, it's with a purpose. We proclaim Christ with a purpose. Proclaiming Christ has this purpose, that we may present everyone mature or perfect in Christ. Um, Paul, the, the uh, servant of the gospel, proclaims, that Christ, or, sorry, proclaims Christ in verse 28 in order that the purpose of Christ's death, verse 22, might be fulfilled. As a purpose. It has a purpose to advance the kingdom. It has a purpose to present everyone mature and holy and blameless for Christ. It's already not yet. Christ has made it possible, and we bring it to fulfillment by persevering, just like we talked about last week. Number four is with pain. With pain. Proclaiming Christ is hard and painful work. It is hard and painful work. He says, this I toil, this I struggle. Toils defined as working extremely hard or incessantly. Its connotation is difficulty. Look at struggle, it's to strive to achieve or attain something in the face of difficulty or resistance. It's going to be tough. There is opposition. We are not just removed from the kingdom of darkness, but we are fighting against it. And people that live there that are absolutely steeped in that, we have to battle against that. And finally, though, as we saw just with perseverance and as we see with everything, it is with power. God is powerfully at work in the exhausted servant of the gospel. Are you tired? You should be. I think it's okay to be tired for multiple reasons. And being tired and exhausted, we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, and we have to rely on Christ. I made the unfortunate mistake of praying that a couple years ago. Um, But God keeps me in a place where I have no control, um, or I find myself in those situations regardless, that I have to trust in him. And ultimately, I find that in what I'm doing, it is ultimately through his power. Just as we persevere and run the race that we can't do without him, we do that in his power. We work it out in him who saved us. He made it possible, and then he makes it doable. (laughs) It's because it's possible to to climb to the top of Mount Everest doesn't mean I'm going to do it. But he makes it doable so that I can achieve that. It's very similar to perseverance. And and at the end of this passage, we we work our way from understanding that uh, there's more suffering to come. There's more misery to come. But it is not in vain. It is a joyous suffering. Paul ultimately is able to begin by saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. James talks about counting all joy in your trials, right? These trials do so many things for us. It makes us depend on God. It pushes us away from ourselves. It allows us to, to take part in what he's trying to do by advancing his kingdom here. It allows us to encourage each other. It allows us to strengthen. It allows us to pull suffering away from other believers by taking it upon ourselves. There's so much wrapped up in this idea of suffering that it moves from just the pain to being a beautiful picture of the fact that this mystery has been revealed to us, the glory of who God is. 
And in that, we can rest, we can find our comfort, we can find our strength and finish the race. Because it has a purpose to bring the kingdom. This isn't a negative suffering. This is a good thing. That's why he's rejoicing. And just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not fun. Just because it's painful doesn't mean that it can't be productive, that it can't be joyous. Stop living in yourself and live in him. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll wrap our time up together in worship. Father, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for who you are. Father, I thank you that you are the one that supplies the power for this. I thank you that you are the one who pushes us for this. And Father, I thank you that you are the one who endures with us. And God, as we share in in your character uh, of your suffering, Father, that we can become such an awesome part and, and Father, play this awesome opportunity that you've given us in, in advancing your kingdom. That it's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's not about being comfortable, Father, but that we can celebrate in suffering. Father, that we add up uh, to the coming of your time. Father, that one day we will have a glorious day. And we can celebrate in you and the work that you have done, and the work that you provided, and Father, the work that you will consummate on that day. And we look forward to your coming. Come, Lord, come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.